This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. A new pandemic preparedness plan from the NIH would pave the way for faster responses to emerging or re-emerging threats of infectious diseases. Dr. Anthony Fauci is director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor to the president. Dr. Fauci, welcome to the program. Thank you, good to be with you. Did the government not have a pandemic preparedness plan before COVID-19? Why did it take two years after the start of a global pandemic? No, uh, that's a understandable misunderstanding. <laughs> we, we've had plans for emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases that go way back. In fact, we implemented them with the Zika and Ebola and pandemic flu. This is really an upgrading and an updating of the pandemic preparedness plan that has elements to it that we had discussed among ourselves and have now been as it were, completely formalized, integrated into the government-wide plan. So the NIAID, my institute that I direct, that's primarily responsible for the conduct and the funding of research in infectious diseases, of which emerging infections is a major component. We've had these kinds of plans for a while. What we're talking about now, what you've heard about, is the government-wide pandemic preparedness plan that has multiple components to it, one of which is the development of countermeasures. So actually, Dr. Fauci, I did, I did want to ask you about the details of the plan because the approach is to identify prototype pathogens and priority pathogens. What does that mean? Okay, so there, there, are, there are two issues that I think the general public needs to understand. If you take a priority pathogen, that means something that you have a high suspicion that might ultimately evolve into a pandemic form. So you, speak, you pick out a very specific um, uh, microbe or pathogen, for example, like Nipah virus or one of the influenzas or another Ebola or something like that. That is a priority pathogen. A prototype pathogen is much more comprehensive and broad. And that is you look at the multiple families of pathogens. For example, one of the families is coronavirus family, which is SARS, MERS, COVID-19. And what you do is that you get some common denominators in that family and you anticipate and work on them to be ready if one of the members of that family evolves into a threatening pathogen. Another one is the filoviruses, which would be, for example, Ebola. Another would be the flaviviruses, which, as you know, is yellow fever and West Nile fever and Zika and all the others. So when you talk about prototype pathogen is you pick out a group and the total group is about 20 of them, different families of viruses that have multiple 
trees, multiple, excuse me, multiple branches on the tree of this particular family. And you do fundamental basic research, be it in the immunology, in the diagnostics, in the virology, in all of that together to be prepared. And, and when people don't really understand what you mean, all you need to do is to show the history of how we responded so extraordinarily successfully to the COVID-19 outbreak with a highly effective and safe group of vaccines and that's what I was gonna. That's what yeah, I was gonna ask you. That that this strategy has been used in the past and has been successful in the past. Oh, it, it's been extraordinarily successful. For example, we did multiple years of basic and clinical research on the coronaviruses that dated back. You know, prior to 2002, the coronaviruses were really a family, and there were four of them that cause about anywhere from 15 to 20% of the common colds that you and I repetitively experience, usually during the winter months. So there wasn't much activity on coronaviruses. Then in 2002, which is now 20 years ago, when we had the first pandemic of SARS coronavirus, you might remember, about 8,000 people in the world got infected and about 800 died. It had about a 10% mortality. Fortunately, it did not spread efficiently enough to become a sustained pandemic. But that alerted us that we better start learning and preparing a lot more for the broad family of coronaviruses, particularly a subgroup called the beta coronaviruses in which COVID-19 and MERS falls into. So that we've been working for at least two decades on getting all of the things that you need to do to move really quickly in case you had an outbreak. And as you alluded to quite correctly, that led to a spectacular success. Up next, we continue speaking with Dr. Anthony Fauci about the new pandemic preparedness plan. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. I wanted to ask you about, in, you know, in developing vaccines, treatments, what part of that work is done at NIH and other government institutions? And then what part is done by private companies like Moderna, Pfizer, others? Well, I when another group in there, and that's what we do here on our campus, such as in our vaccine research center, which was the major group, literally a thousand yards or a thousand feet from where I'm sitting right now, who developed the immunogens that we used in the successful COVID-19 vaccines. But about 80% of the money that's spent on research is not spent here on campus. It goes to grants and contracts 
to universities and medical centers throughout the country and in some respects throughout the world. So there are government scientists like myself and my lab and my team, and there are people at Harvard and Yale and San Francisco and Seattle and Cornell and places like that that we fund. We often uh, collaborate with pharmaceutical companies. For example, when we developed together with Moderna, the mRNA vaccine that is now successfully used with COVID-19, that was a long-standing and very commonly employed collaboration with fundamental basic and clinical scientists, as well as pharmaceutical companies. So that's how that marriage occurred. But a lot of it has to do with grantees at universities. Dr. Fauci, a big part of this pandemic preparedness plan is coordination across the government with private partners and internationally. It sounds like an awful lot of coordination. How do you do that? Well, you do it by an all of government response. For example, the overall pandemic plan that you probably are alluding to is one that came out of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. But the actual scientific planning came from the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, and the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. So a lot of it is focused in the Department of Health and Human Services. But when you look about pandemic preparedness, it involves more than one agency. It involves all the sub-agencies within HHS, but it also involves the Department of Defense. It involves USAID. It involves the Department of State. So it really is an all of government and it is coordinated really quite well. What about the communication plan with the American public? Is there a plan for that through your organization, NIAID? Well, we certainly have a very strong communication uh, uh, enterprise here that has a lot of experience with communicating everything from risks to an evaluation of the research findings and how they need to be interpreted. It is overall coordinated at the level of the department. Uh, so let me give you an example. The White House has a communication group that we deal with literally multiple times a week, sometimes every day. There's a communication group at HHS, and I have my own communication group here at NIAID, and they are talking to each other literally on a daily basis. So it really is quite quite well organized. And finally, Dr. Fauci, and I know your, your time is tight and that you've got to go, but I'm wondering what do we already have in place now, given what we've been through in the last two years, that puts us in a better place if, if there is, an, and everybody agrees that there will be another pandemic in the future? Well, we have not only the extraordinary experience of what we've been through, but we also have a number of people already working on things like a pan-coronavirus vaccine, multiplex diagnostics, discovery and development of antivirals. That's going on right now in preparation for the next outbreak. So you don't hear a lot about that because everyone is understandably and appropriately focusing on the challenge of COVID-19, but already there's an awful lot going on in preparation for what will inevitably, even though we don't know when, but inevitably we'll get another pandemic. 
All right. Well, Dr. Fauci, appreciate you joining us, and thank you very much for, for being with us. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Coming next, getting commercial technology adopted and to the warfighter quickly is the focus of the Defense Innovation Unit. Straight ahead on Government Matters, we look at the most impactful capabilities DIU delivered in the last year. Stay with us. Commercial technology adopted and to the warfighter quickly is the focus of the Defense Innovation Unit. The DIU works with partners within the DOD and across government to prototype, field, and scale commercial solutions. Here to talk about their fiscal 2021 annual report is Mike Matson. He's the Deputy Director at the Defense Innovation Unit. Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. Thanks for having me. So DIU is a relatively new organization uh, within the DOD. What motivated the creation of it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, DO, DIU was started in 2015 by then Secretary of Defense Ash Carter as a way to illuminate a path for non-traditional companies to do business with DOD. Uh, the commercial sector outspends government by about $250 billion in R&D every year, research and development every year, and there's a recognition that there was no easy way to get this leading edge technology into the department. So DIU was really created to lower a lot of those barriers to entry to the defense marketplace, uh, barriers such as uh, the expense to do business, the time involved to do business. A lot of non-traditional early stage tech companies uh, didn't have the capital or the time to uh, uh, wait for uh, multi multiple years for contracting, so they had to uh, find a way to uh, get them in much more quickly. So let's talk about the process itself. <clears throat> How do you connect the Defense Department with these innovative um, small companies? Well, what we do, uh, we've developed uh, two internal teams. We have a defense engagement team and a commercial engagement team. And every project we have starts with our DOD partner, with a demand signal uh, and a problem they're trying to solve. And we curate their problem down to a, a simply stated problem statement, half a page or a paragraph. And we get rid of the acronyms. We get rid of the uh, Pentagon E's and put it in terms that the tech uh, industry understands. At the same time, we have a commercial engagement team that is engaging with the commercial ecosystem to understand where the investment is taking place in those uh, uh, leading edge technology development areas, where the VCs are investing their money, uh, and then we just determine if there is a commercial solution uh, that through minor customization, proving through prototyping, will solve our DOD problem. So you're actually out there looking for these companies. They're not coming to you necessarily. Uh, we do have companies that come to us, but we are also out in the ecosystem to uh, see where the in investment is. So in fiscal 2021, uh, DIU delivered 35 capabilities. Can you um, tell us a little bit about some of the more notable ones? Uh, you bet. And one thing uh, from our FY21 report that is, is very clear is that the experiment that uh, then Secretary of Defense Ash Carter started is working. Um, but there's a lot of work still to be done on that. And one of those is continuing the prototyping uh, process. Uh, and we look at uh, across the tech sectors, and I'll use an example of AI and some of the companies we've put on contract there. Uh, so we look to leverage the development in uh, the commercial AI to solve problems and to use that AI technology to make better, faster decisions. 
Okay, but isn't the traditional defense space already doing that? I mean, everybody's doing AI, it seems. Uh, they are now, but what we do is we do it much faster. And okay. we're able to, instead of uh, developing something organically, we leverage what they've done. For example, with AI, uh, the commercial sector has solved the problem on predictive maintenance years ago. We were able to uh, quickly adapt that and bring that in and apply it to uh, platforms across the Air Force as well as the other services. But we're also able to look at that same type of rapid decision-making assistance and apply it to other things. It takes a little more customization and a little more prototyping. One of our uh, recently transitioned projects is using AI to help determine uh, hypersonic missile tracking and be able to make those decisions much more quickly. And in fact, we transitioned that project uh, with our DOD partner to a uh, half a billion dollar uh, contract after the prototyping. You mentioned transitioning, because that's really the most important right. part, right? So you, you take the capability, you <clears throat> at scale, which is important, it's not right. just a prototype, across the valley of death into a program of record. How do you facilitate that? Uh, Mimi, you're exactly right. Transition is our most important uh, mission, and that is the metric that we track the most closely. Getting technology into the hands of our men and women in uniform is our ultimate goal. And so what we did is uh, a couple years ago, we examined our transition rate, and that was when we stood up those two internal teams that I mentioned before. So that before we even take on a project, we work with our DOD partner to determine what is the transition plan. How are we gonna transition this to a production contract or a program of record and move it forward in, in that direction? You know, I, I wanna ask you about some of the recipients of the contract awards, the companies that you're working with. Nearly three quarters are small businesses <clears throat> and then 86% are non-traditional. How do you define non-traditional? Uh, that's right. It's actually uh, defined in the FARN. It's a company that has not had a contract uh, within the last year. And our uh, statute, the authority for us to operate, specifically targets non-traditional companies to bring them in. So that's intentional. It is absolutely intentional. Because uh, I think there's a recognition that sometimes that's where the, uh, the agility is. Uh, but there's also provisions to work with our traditional defense industrial base partners as well in partnership, uh, systems integrators. But look, modernization uh, of the department is going to take all players. So we want to leverage the non-traditionals, the traditionals, the small business, uh, the systems integrators, all in that effort to get the best technology uh, that we can across the country into the hands of our men and women in uniform. So what will the focus be for this fiscal year? <clears throat> So this fiscal year, uh, we talk about this era of great power competition, but what we're also really good at is cooperation. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to keep on doing what we do. We're going to keep on getting that technology uh, into DOD as quickly as we can. But we've also shifted to a regional focus now so that we can align the DOD innovation entities in the regions, uh, and we also demystify how to work with DOD in those regions uh, and very specifically working with folks. And then finally, we're exploring ways to work more closely with our partners and allies. Um, look, uh, technology is democratized, uh, and technology development is happening around the world, and we want to work with our combatant command partners, our uh, partner and allied nation uh, friends, and to develop that technology and get it into our combined forces as quickly as possible. Mike, thank you so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Great. Thank you, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And find us on social media. Subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, our Twitter handle is GovMattersTV, and connect with us on LinkedIn at Government Matters Media. We love hearing what viewers have to say. Here are some of our recent poll results from LinkedIn. And you can send us your thoughts as well. Be sure to vote on our current social media polls.
That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.